we had a series of threats and then uh, armed attacks. A car drove by and uh, shot with a AK-47. This is The Backstory, a brand new podcast exploring media freedom around the world. The police pretty much raided the offices and then five of the staff were taken to Nalufenya Police Detention Center. In our first episode, we're starting with the basics, real threats faced by journalists across the globe. Five workers at the newspaper were kidnapped for the cartels to send a message to us that we should stop running some stories. We want to send a message for the government to show that they are in control. Too often, journalists put safety aside to get the story. Editors don't anticipate the problems their reporters or their newsrooms can face. Some news organizations have been able to look into how they would handle a crisis because they had a bad experience that has forced them to look into a worst-case scenario. We used to react with safety measures after an attack, but if you have a panic reaction, it usually doesn't work. How can journalists be better prepared? And what should editors think about we're talking about changing a culture, uh, you know, embedding this culture of safety. That's not something that is going to happen overnight. As long as government feel they are not happy with a particular story, they will try and hit where it hurts most. Welcome to The Backstory, a new podcast from Wanifru, the World Association of Newspapers and News Publishers. I'm Andrew Heslop, Wanifru's Press Freedom Director. Each month, we'll be looking at an issue facing journalists and media organizations throughout the world. This month, dying to be a journalist. Press freedom organizations regularly publish lists of the number of journalists killed around the world, the number of journalists held hostage or imprisoned. But editors and newsroom managers often put in place safety protocols only once something has gone wrong. Safety is an afterthought, something that's seen as holding up reporting. And yet, the numbers show that it should be a priority, and not just in war zones. Javier Garza has first-hand experience with violence in one of the most dangerous countries to be a journalist. At least six reporters were killed in Mexico in 2017, and about 20 other journalist deaths are being investigated. These numbers have only been going up over the past several years. Mexico is not a country at war in the traditional sense, but nevertheless, there are serious threats. Organized crime, it's a big threat. Government is also a big threat whenever there are exposures of corruption, investigations of corruption. Most attacks against journalists, when they come from the government, they come from police forces. No police is going to investigate itself. So it's basically a, a protection network. Javier Gasser is a journalist and a trainer in journalist safety. He learned about security out of necessity when he was the editor of a newspaper in Torreón, in northern Mexico, in the late 2000s. Torreón had been caught in a crossfire between two drug cartels in northern Mexico. The first attack, physical attack, was in August of 2009. And it was, I think, about one in the morning. The paper was, was printing, and a car drove by and uh, shot with a AK-47, smashed some windows. Everybody was uh, inside, and they were safe. We went back and see what stories we had run that might have provoked this, but we really couldn't find any. So that's where we started. Well, we, we instituted some uh, safety measures for the building, and then also for the staff. You know, we were receiving threats through intermediaries and on the phone and things like that constantly. So you began developing safety plans and protocols. What kind of things were they? What, what did they involve? Well, they involved several things. Keeping basically two goals at the same time that could seem to be contradictory. One was to keep the staff safe, but the other one is to keep informing what's going on. 
The violence against the newspaper was an immediate consequence of our reporting of the violence that organized crime groups were unleashing on the city, but we needed to keep reporting that while keeping our staff safe. So it, it was kind of a tricky situation. In terms of the actual physical protection mechanisms that you put in place, can you describe some of those? They involve, for example, personal safety measures whenever you're uh, driving around the city, for example. When you go cover a crime scene, for example, make sure that you always go accompanied by somebody else. We, for example, uh, had to institute a, a rule that said that reporters could arrive at the scene of a crime only when that scene had been secured by police or some uh, security force. In terms of the editorial practices, um, what were some of the measures that you decided to unroll? Well, one of the things was that we tried to treat the stories sort of equally. The criminals themselves, they want to send messages through the way that they exercise violence. So we had to be very careful that we did not become involuntary spokespersons for the cartels in the way that we were running the stories. So what we did was try to cover each one in sort of the same way. If you have the story about a dead man in the street, for example, that your, your treatment is X, maybe uh, inside pages. If the body had been beheaded, that's a higher impact. So maybe you move it forward toward the front page, right? So our idea was, you know, we are not going to give details in the pictures or in the headlines about right. how the crime had been carried out because that's what the criminals want. We're going to write about it, but we're just going to put it in the story. Overall, did these measures work? Did they have an impact um, in terms of the aims that you, you set out for? Uh, I, I really don't know. The only way that you can actually measure it is uh, if there is the absence of, of damage. We did have some damage. What ended the violence against the newspaper on one hand, but also the violence against journalists in Torreón, Mexico, was that in February of 2013, five workers at the newspaper were kidnapped for about 12 hours and, and then released. But the story had such high impact that the government took action and dismantled the criminal group and the attacks really stopped. This is really, to me, the lesson about impunity. Impunity is really the fuel of attacks against journalists. All the previous attacks that we suffered had gone without answer. And so that impunity was what allowed this group to kidnap our colleagues, thinking that no, nothing was going to happen to them. After something did happen to them, I guess that there was some sort of a message. Uh, and that's really what stopped the attacks against journalists in my region. I wish I could say that it was made as an example for the rest of the country, but really this was more the exception because the rest of the country is still suffering from this. Are some of the experiences that you've seen implemented amongst the profession, are they applicable elsewhere? Well, the specific measures, I always say this, don't, don't travel well. They have to be first put through a, a test, and, and that test is really your an evaluation of your level of risk. I always tell uh, journalists, editors, and media executives to first analyze what their situation is. You know, who wants to harm them? What are their capabilities? How have journalists been attacked before to sort of try to get patterns and work from there? Another part is, is your digital security. You need to bring everybody in sync with a plan for all of them to protect their digital activities. Globally, we're seeing the rise of 
online threats becoming increasingly a problem for journalists. In, Me- in the Mexican context, what, is, what does that look like? One of the biggest scandals last year in Mexico was the revelation of how journalists and activists had been uh, hacked with a spyware program called Pegasus that only governments can buy. That's pretty sophisticated, but there are you know numerous attempts at the local level that are usually not very visible. Public officials or police forces or maybe even criminals that might want to get their hands on electronic communications. And so they might, you know, attempt to steal your phone maybe and and get into your chats and see who are your sources or what stories you're working on. Digital harassment is a big problem, even if it doesn't entail physical harm, because at some point it might. Digital security, it's really important because it's sort of like a first layer of of, uh, protection. Even if it doesn't entail physical harm, it might lead to that in the future. So in, in conclusion to whether it's a digital threat or indeed a physical threat, um, one of the real sort of starting points is to really get a level-headed approach to the risk assessment process. Yeah, you need a cool head. Sometimes we used to react with safety measures after an attack had occurred. But if you have a panic reaction, it usually doesn't work. For example, in Mexico, in some state governments where they have uh, protection mechanisms, One of the safety measures that they adopt for journalists after receiving a threat is, for example, giving them a bulletproof vest, which doesn't really work because 80% of journalists that have been killed in Mexico were kidnapped before they were killed. So having a bulletproof vest doesn't really work, right? So that's just like a knee-jerk reaction. And I think that we need to think deeper than that. You need to think through your measures in terms of what kind of damage might be done to you. Javier Garza is a journalist in Mexico and a global trainer in journalist safety. You're listening to The Backstory, a media freedom podcast. It may seem obvious that journalists should take care of their own safety, but until something happens, reporters and editors often overlook the need to put in place measures to protect themselves. It's interesting to see how some of the news organizations that have had a wake-up call, a bad experience of a journalist being kidnapped or killed. In some cases, it has transformed the way they deal with safety and security. Elizabeth Cantens is the executive director of the ACOS Alliance, a coalition of news, freelancer and press freedom organizations promoting safe practices for journalists. ACOS, a culture of safety, was involved in training some 150 journalists in 2017. And Cantens feels as if the message has started to get through to journalists and editors. I think there is an increasing awareness. Um, We're not there yet. It is difficult. The key is to change habits. And that's a mindset. That's very hard to change. I talk quite often with journalists where they see the approach that they had for safety was a little bit like, oh, now I have to deal with with all the things that you're asking me. And I always use two arguments, you know, being professional means to be safe. And the other thing is that if you really care about the story, you need to make sure you're, you're going to be able to tell us that story. And if you're not safe, you're not going to be able to do it. But in order to stay safe, you need to know what the danger is. As Javier Gassa said, a risk assessment is key. Elizabeth Cantens agrees. There's a universal rule that I, I always go back to, which is expect the unexpected and be as prepared as you can to deal with it. And that stays for an editor and for a journalist. Uh, I'm a big, big fan of risk assessments and communications plans because that risk assessment 
if it's properly done, will go through every single scenario and will get you thinking into what are the measures that you need to put in place. I mean, sometimes, you know, we feel like, oh, yes, you know, I'm going to buy a helmet. Well, maybe it's not a helmet what you need, you know. Um, So it's really analyzing and understanding what, what the threats are and have a package of things that are ready for it. And same with the communications plan. You know, we, we go on, on a holiday and we tell our partner or our parent, oh, I'm going to call you when I get there. Well, wouldn't you do the same if you go somewhere to do a sensitive interview? Communications plan, it's not, it doesn't need to be anything too sophisticated. Really making sure that you have, you know, a key emergency contact, um, that if you haven't called at the end of the day or in two hours, that person will press the red button and will know what to do because they would have had the discussion with you before. So you you mentioned working with both journalists and editors. Is there a difference in approach? Is there a difference in rationale behind that? I think the rationale is the same. The approach is more about what's the role for a journalist in the news gathering and the role that the editor plays. Essentially, we are talking about the same safety um, and how we can be better prepared. I've incorporated this word into my vocabulary now, is that complicity. Because uh, We talk a lot about responsibility and I think it goes beyond it. I think it's complicity. It's really working together and being complices and making sure that uh, the journalist is safe, that the editor is safe, that the newsroom is safe. Do editors have sometimes unreasonable expectations for journalists? You know, I don't think the expectation is the is the problem. I think is that sometimes the the safety conversation doesn't take place altogether. It's not being discussed. There is no clarity or transparency about what risks everyone is taking, and if something goes wrong. What's going to happen? How are we going to deal with it? How far we can go in protecting you? What advice would you have to share for people in the field who are facing imminent threats? Be prepared. I think that's that's the key thing. Stop. Stop what you're doing now. <laughs> and step back and think, why are you doing this? How far you want to go? And what are the measures you need to take in order to continue to do it in a safe way? We are increasingly talking about risk assessments and communications plans. You know, I I often find myself uh, that I have to explain less and less what are these and and why are they important. Um, But we're not there yet. And um, I've seen also how sometimes it's being done, but it's not being done properly. So if you have a risk assessment just for the sake of doing it and you don't do it properly, it's just a piece of paper. Elizabeth Cantens is the executive director of the ACOS Alliance, a coalition of organizations working to develop worldwide protection standards for journalists. This is The Backstory, a new podcast about media freedom issues around the world. Each month we'll be exploring an issue that journalists or news organizations face while doing their work. We'll also bring you a roundup of some depressing media freedom stories from around the world to put on your radar. Wenifra Media Freedom Manager Mariana Sanz will bring us up to date. 
the Philippines online news site Rappler has had its registration revoked by the country's Securities and Exchange Commission. The SEC says the site violates media ownership clauses in the Constitution because it receives funding from a foreign entity, the Omidyar Network. In a statement, Rappler said the government is using the ownership issue to harass the site, which has been under attack since 2016. Rappler says it will continue to operate as it files appeals in court. One of the leaders of press freedom in Latin America, the Uruguayan journalist Claudio Paulillo, has died at the age of 57. He was a good friend of Juanifra and the former chair of the Committee of Freedom of the Press and Information in the Inter-American Press Association. He was the editor of the weekly newspaper Busqueda from 2010 to 2016. The Association of Argentine News Entities awarded him a prize last year for raising awareness of the biggest freedom of expression abuses in the Americas. Media organizations in Southeast Asia are raising the alarm about allegations of sexual harassment by government officials against female journalists in Malaysia, Indonesia and the Philippines. Several female journalists reported having to deal with unwanted sexual advances. Some were told to take advantage of the situation to get a bigger scoop on the story they were working on. Press freedom organizations Garam and AGI have called on all news sources to show respect for working journalists. In January, the leaders of six members of the International Freedom of Expression Exchange, IFEX, went on an unprecedented fact-finding mission in the United States to look into the climate of media freedom there. They went to Texas and Missouri and then met with high-level policemakers in Washington with the goal of drawing attention to the decline of media freedom in the U.S. We've been talking about threats to journalists and what they and news organizations can do to be better prepared. But danger doesn't only come from drug cartels, organized crime or armed conflict. Sometimes the threat can be the government itself. In Uganda, eight editors and journalists with one of the country's largest newspapers, Red Pepper, were arrested in November 2017 over an article that was said by the authorities to endanger national security. The case brought the Ugandan journalist community together and has gotten them thinking about how to protect themselves in the future. Carol Bianga works as the managing editor for digital content at Daily Monitor Publications and is also the chair of the Uganda Media Freedom Committee, a network established by Wanifra to bring news professionals together to address media freedom challenges in countries across the globe. Carol recalls what happens to her colleagues from Red Pepper. On 21st of November, around mid-afternoon, we started to see messages saying there's something happening at Red Pepper. The police came into the offices and told them they had a police warrant to search their premises the police told the, a number of the directors and editors that they wanted to search their homes as well, particularly homes of the CEO and two of the other main people, plus the managing editor and the news editor. Uh, that night, the five of the staff were taken to Nalufenya Police Detention Center, which in the last two years or so uh, has been known to keep high-profile criminals. So it was all that they took those editors there, you know, they would have thought they would have put them in a police cell in the jurisdiction where they work. Do we have any indication what they were looking for? Yes, so in, uh, on 20th of November, the Red Pepper ran a story titled Museveni Plotting to Overthrow Kagame, Rwanda. And they picked this from the Rwandan website. The story was written in a um, dialect in Rwanda, so they, they tried to translate it and then ran the story. The next day, the police 
pretty much raided the offices. According to what we were told, they said they were looking for evidence in regards to the story that was run. So, But they were looking for mostly electronics, so phones, iPads, tablets, laptops. And, and what, what kind of an effect did that have on, on you yourself and, and obviously sort of your colleagues and, and the rest of the community? Yeah, it was, it was, it was shocked. It's not the first time a red bar has been closed. In fact, they've been closed at the time they were closed with us, the Daily Monitor. But it's always stopped at that. You know, you're closed and, you know, you have to now negotiate. We've never really had people being taken to a centre. And in fact, even when we have had our uh, reporters or editors taken to prison, it's usually taken for a few hours, then they're let go. But so this was the first thought. You know, they were being arrested and being put in, in, in jail and being made to spend a night. And they spent more than 48 hours without being charged, which is not according to the law. Yeah, so of course it, it shocks us. Why do you think they were arrested and, and, and held without charge for so long rather than the usual due process taking place in terms of perhaps a civil suit or, or something happening within the court system? I think like um, first it was to send a message uh, to show that the government was, uh, was not happy with the kind of story they had written. But also the other idea was also, I think, for the government to show that they are in control. It was to, to scare both the Red Paper editors and directors, but also the media. So what did you do in the immediate aftermath of the arrests, you and the committee uh, and the community of journalists in Uganda? As the Press Freedom Forum, we decided let's do a statement. We sent out the statement on different platforms to show uh, our solidarity with them, but also to show our increasing unease with the way the government is dealing with journalists. There was a lot of writing in the newspapers, opinions, editorials, like almost every day or at least every two or three days, different people saying, you know, the way these people are being treated is not right and uh, the police need to do this in a better way. Do you think any of that had an impact? I, I won't lie, I'm really not sure. Uh, because part of me believes the police has a script and they're following their script. But part of me thinks also that the pressure also helped a bit because there's a lot of pressure. We kept reporting and saying this is now happening. So I think other people felt they should get involved. So the HRNJ... The Human Rights Network for Journalists, they came out to also uh, condemn what the, was happening. Uh, then also ACME. ACME is uh, in full is African Center for Media Excellence. Then we also had the American ambassador in an interview say, you know, very strong words about how the government is putting pressure on journalists uh, for wrong reasons. So I think that us, us finding the talk, eh, um, got the people to also say something. So we've been talking about different threats that journalists face globally um, and also what the profession itself can do to respond to those threats. In, in your view, what's the best way to deal with this kind of threat in Uganda? So in my view, I think we need to show that, first of all, that we are one force and not be divided. Of course, we are competitors in, in the industry, but once we know that our freedom is being curtailed, I think we should come together as one force, and then put pressure by writing as many stories, you know, debating about it uh, on talk shows, on the radio, on the TV. Then the other thing is to also continually keep our journalists aware of what they can do and what they can't do, because we do have our freedoms, but we also have our laws. Many of the journalists um, have not gone through your the path that maybe you'd say a professional goes through, you know, um, through school and then do a, a mass communication degree or a journalism degree and then, you know, start practicing. Many of them maybe did a different course, maybe did a, um, something altogether very different. So a number of them may not be aware of what good journalism 
in detail is, you know, they may not also be aware that they're entitled to a number of things, you know, like, for example, like, they should not be arrested if there's no police warrant. They think as long as a policeman calls you and says, do this, you must do it. So that would be very important for us to have um, that kind of training. Because, you see, the red is maybe the biggest right now, but they've previously, they've been, the press has been targeted in different ways. Eh? So I don't think this is going to be the last. As long as the president, perhaps, or people around him or in government feel they are not happy with a particular story or a particular line, they will try and hit where it hurts most. Carol Bianger is the chair of the Uganda Media Freedom Committee. Following our conversations with Carol, on January the 23rd, the Red Pepper editors and staff received a presidential pardon. All charges were dropped and the paper was back in business a week later. And that brings us to the end of the very first episode of The Backstory, a podcast about media freedom issues around the world. There's more on the issue of safety and security for journalists on our website, one-ifra.org. That's w-a-n-i-f-r-a.org. On the site, you can sign up for our Media Freedom newsletter to get the latest on what journalists and news organizations are facing. And we encourage you to subscribe to this podcast, which will have new episodes coming out every month. We'll soon be on iTunes and wherever you get your podcasts. So when you do find us on those platforms, please give us a rating. Five stars would be great, but anything helps get the word out. Our production team includes Mariana Sanz, Wanifra Media Freedom Manager, Colette Davidson and Sarah Elsas, who also edited and mixed this episode. I'm Andrew Heslop, Wanifra's Press Freedom Director. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>